Welcome back to the Our View podcast. On today's episode, I welcome my guest, Karin Lucas. Karin is a professor of curriculum and instruction and director of transformative teaching and learning at Shenandoah University. Join our conversation as we discuss the importance of tailoring IEPs or individualized education plans to meet the culturally and linguistic diverse needs of the families they are created to help. So I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Our View podcast, where we aim to raise awareness, educate, and change the tone of conversation about disabilities. I'm very happy to welcome my guest today, uh, one of my friends, Karen Lucas, to the podcast. And I am so happy to have you here today. And uh, thank you for joining me. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. So, um, I always start off my podcast asking my guests to introduce themselves. So can you tell us who is Karen? <laughs> who is Karen? Um, wow. Okay, we could spend a whole podcast on who's Karen. <laughs> um, I'm Karen Lucas, uh, professionally speaking. I am a professor of curriculum and instruction and uh, the director for transformative teaching and learning here at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. Um, Personally speaking, I am a mother, a wife, a daughter, sister, friend, um, uh, but that's kind of me in a nutshell. I love it. And that is why I love um, asking people to introduce themselves because we all see ourselves as different people. You have, you know, most of us do have professional and personal lives. And uh, I always like when I introduce myself because I say very similar things that, you know, I'm a son, a brother, an uncle, a friend. And yeah, I also live with spina bifida. I also have, you know, that also is a part of my life. It's not all of who I am though. There's so much more to us all than, um, you know, even than uh, our jobs uh, or, you know, what diagnosis we may have or, or things like that. So I always love um, giving people the opportunity to share what they would like people to know about them. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> So, so you and I, we were introduced by our mutual friend, Katina, who told me to tell you hello, by the way. I, <laughs> I do uh, communicate with her fairly often. And uh, you, and, you and Katina met on um, a cruise ship and uh, part of a program called Autism on the Seas. Can you um, talk to us a little bit about what Autism on the Seas is about? Because as soon, when I heard about that, I thought it was a quite fantastic idea. And um, I would love to hear, uh, uh, I would love for our listeners to hear what it is more uh, about. Sure. So I think among those other labels, if I were to kind of expand uh, one of my labels, that of mother, I'm the mother of two children. I have a daughter who's a sophomore in college and I have a son who just turned 17 last week. And my son um, has, uh, is severely autistic. So he's nonverbal. Um, he attends a private day school. Um, so, uh, and he's had that diagnosis uh, for quite a while since too. And when we, when he was younger, uh, probably about six or seven, you know, we had kindly, uh, kind of finally gotten a handle on, we felt like, you know, what life was going to be like 
at least as far as we could predict it. And we really wanted to spend more time together as a family, quality time. We were so busy with therapists and interventionists and all kinds of things that we really wanted to take a vacation time. So literally I sat down at Google and I Googled autism vacation. And the first thing that popped up is autism on the seas. Now that was 10 years ago. We've done a cruise with autism on the seas uh, every year for the past 10 years with the exception of last year because of COVID. And what autism on the seas is, it's a group um, based in uh, the Northeast. And what they do is they um, select different cruises. So they, leave, they go to Alaska, they, go, they leave from Texas, they leave from the East Coast, and they staff those cruises with um, educators who are very familiar with the challenges of not only autism, but Down syndrome, uh, cerebral palsy, all kinds of uh, things that would make it perhaps otherwise difficult for someone to enjoy a cruise vacation. So you book a trip with Autism on the Seas, you show up at the port, there's a group of people wearing orange shirts, they call themselves Team Orange. And from the moment you set foot in the port until the moment you disembark, you are fully staffed and supported by this group of people. So there's consistency every day, you eat in the same place every day so that student is, not students, I always think of that when I think of young people, uh -huh. <laughs> but when travelers, you know, they like that consistency and predictability. You never have to wait in a line. Uh, you get all of these great perks. In fact, you get such great perks that people who are not part of your group, because we're just a small group on a cruise ship, will often come up and say, hey, how do I get on this autism on the seas thing? You guys don't stand in line. And I'm like, oh, membership has its privileges, right? So <laughs> That's Autism on the Seas, I love it. I'm a member of their guest advisory board, so I talk with prospective travelers all the time. Um, but it really is this amazing way for a family to really um, have a vacation together in a no judgment zone. So if someone has a meltdown during dinner in the fancy restaurant, everyone in our group is like, okay, been there. And so it's a real, it's very relaxing in that sense that you can kind of, you know you're a, among a group of people who who gets it, for lack of a better phrase. Right. And it, I, when Katina was telling me about it, I just thought it was the most fantastic idea. And it's, it's really great that, um, you know, the, the team is there to support everybody. And so just everyone has, has an enjoyable experience. And um, it, it's really great that that uh, program exists. And yes, I did hear that you were, uh, the uh, most traveled. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, the, I, I might be up there, but I don't know if we're the most traveled. Um, I'm not gonna lie, we're, a, my family's a big fan of buffets. So anytime yes. we say let us loose, you know, when food is involved, we're, we're there. Um, so I don't know what's gonna happen with the COVID and how that's gonna change everything. But really, you know, even if you only do one cruise with them, it really is a, um, for a lot of people, I know it's a life-changing sort of experience. So it is It is great. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And I, I wanted to bring that up because Katina, as I mentioned, she did connect us. And then, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction of yourself, you are a uh, professor. So you um, invited me to speak to uh, one of your classes back in 2018. As we mentioned uh, before we started recording, we were ahead of this whole virtual COVID thing here. I live in New Jersey, your school is in Virginia, and uh, I was able to speak with uh, one of your classes about disabilities and the work that I do. So again, thank you for that opportunity. And, um, you know, that was 2018, which is so hard to believe. And 
thankfully and gratefully, we have stayed connected. And, um, you know, so we're, we're having a, another uh, great moment here of, of knowledge and learning and education. So I, uh, again, appreciate your time for this, uh, for this chance to speak with you. And um, so you, you, in our conversation preparing for this interview, you uh, shared with me that you co-wrote a book called Voices from Around the IEP Table, Perspectives on Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Families. Mm -hmm. Love that title. It's so important um, because we all have different backgrounds and uh, all families uh, that you encounter are diverse and um, they all can have different needs. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the book and what inspired you to uh, co-write this book? I sure can. And I realized on my way into work this morning, I should have had a copy to, to display. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, so I um, so I co-wrote this book with a friend and a colleague from Georgetown University named Sherry Steely. And Sherry Steely and I, Sherry and I went through the same doctor doctoral program at George Mason University, but at different times. We had an advisor in common and who is now at Stanford. And he said, you know, I think you two would get along. Maybe you ought to, you know, meet and see what happens. So we met and we talked a lot about our experiences. And Sherry has a son who's on the autism spectrum, which, and I, and obviously I do as well. And so we, of course, our conversation turned to um, IEP meetings. And, and for those you know who might not be aware, that's individualized education program. It's something, it's a kind of a plan for students who need supports and special education services throughout an academic year. And so Sherry and I both have PhDs and we found ourselves really talking about um, how difficult it was to navigate an IEP meeting. And we were thinking, we were saying to ourselves, wow, we are you know, is about as highly educated in, in a field as you could possibly be. We're both former classroom teachers. I'm an elementary school teacher. She's middle and secondary. And we still had problems uh, at IEP meetings, kind of understanding what the process was, et cetera. And uh, Sherry's very familiar with working with students who receive ESL or English as second language services. And she said, well, just imagine what it's like for people who maybe don't speak English. And we both kind of looked at each other and we said, ah, Maybe there's a book there. So we started by um, interviewing families who were culturally and linguistically diverse and talking about you know, how they navigated the system. And what we realized very quickly is, is that you know, there were a lot of stories to be told here. So we spent about two years um, interviewing a number of different people who kind of typically sit around an IEP table. So in addition to the general ed classroom teacher, we talked to special ed teachers, we talked to translators, or interpreters, we talked to speech language therapists, we talked to principals and kind of tried to, the end result is in each chapter of our book, we kind of pull all of that data together to kind of give the perspective of what a typical person at the IEP table might be thinking or experiencing when it comes to working with students who are culturally and linguistically diverse. And along the way, kind of supporting that with the research that's out there and then providing questions for anyone who's reading it to think about, you know, hey, what does this mean for your own practice? So really kind of trying to bring to light, shine a light on, you know, how difficult an IEP is on many different levels, not just for the families, but for the practitioners and kind of all those pieces and how they come together. So um, by the end of it, you know, like I say, it was two years in, in the making, uh, 
I felt very battle weary and because of the stories we had heard from both sides. So um, it was it was definitely, it was bigger than we thought it was going to be. And um, mm -hmm. so that's, you know, so right now we're just kind of letting it sit before we choose something else because it was, there was a lot of mental and psychological overload that came with it. So yeah, but that's yeah. the book. Yeah, I can't. Um... I've, I've interviewed a few other people that have written books and just to hear about what the general process is of writing a book and how long it actually takes. And, you know, like you said, two years and some people were saying, you know, three, you know, almost four years. And then with the subject matter that you were um, writing about, I'm, I'm quite sure that was really, um, like you said, draining and you know, draining and taxing on you all mentally just to, um, hear those experiences and, uh, and and that's the the part that um, I'm, I'm glad that you did tell me about the book because these are the experiences and stories we need to hear just because there are so many people that go into uh, these IEP meetings and every again every family is different and has different needs and and uh, you know all the other people around the table have to uh, pivot and, and make adjustments for those uh, different needs. So that's, uh, you know, this book is very necessary and uh, very important that, that you have written, uh, co-written it. And can you tell us where uh, the book can be found uh, if people would like to purchase? Sure. Um, you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can also email me and I'll send you a link. Um, but yeah, it's just voices from around the IEP table and it pops right up. I, I would I would say um, one of the things that did, one of the reasons it took us longer than we had anticipated um, was that we found ourselves in a lot of the meetings, especially with parents and families, that we would have to stop taking notes or turn off our recorder because we felt that um, we needed to do some in the moment advocacy because some of the things that parents and families were telling us, um, frankly, bordered on illegal. Um, and so we felt like we could not keep going. So that was a lot of what kind of, um, I don't wanna say it slowed it down because it was a really, it was good for us to hear that and to be able to, to help if we could. But it, it, that's what made it somewhat more challenging is that there were some cases we just, we had to stop what we were doing and, and move on from there. But um, it's been purchased, it's been used in a couple of different teacher ed, pro, uh, teacher ed programs, which I'm really excited about. It has not been optioned for a lifetime movie. I don't expect that it will, uh, but it is, you know, it is, our point is we just want to start a conversation, right? So we want, we have right. questions at the end, resources at the end. We really want people to understand that it's not just a bunch of, you know, automatons sitting at a table. Everyone is coming to the table with different perspectives, different beliefs, different judgments. And, you know, in order to make that team really work for the student, that's what we're trying to do is kind of get those conversations started. Yes. And that is how, that's how I believe changes are made when you have the conversations and a lot of times they are difficult conversations to have, <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, but just to have that conversation, to open up that dialogue between all of the parties involved and, um, you know, just share and, and tell about their experiences and, and how things can be 
uh, improved, I, I think. And, and we can only do that if we uh, talk about things and how they are, how they're not working or what is working. And uh, again, what can be improved. Yeah. Um, so in, in the book, you uh, give suggestions for improving the experiencing. The, I'm sorry, in your book, yeah. <laughs> in your book, you give uh, suggestions for how to improve experiences of serving culturally and linguistically diverse families. Can you um, share one of those uh, suggestions uh, with us? I can. And um, I want to share one that I think translates to almost any environment in terms mm -hmm. of when you're interacting with um, different people from different groups. And that is really considering the optics of how a meeting is held. So one of the things that we ran across a lot when we talked to parents and families is they would walk into an IEP meeting room and there would be, you know, they could see that there'd been, there'd be lipstick on the coffee cups. They could see that people have been eating and it gave the impression whether or not it was true that there had been a meeting before their meeting and that perhaps that, that group had been meeting, the teachers had been meeting or the specialists had been meeting without the parents or families present. And that immediately, people immediately took, made a judgment about that and often took offense about that because they were like, wait a minute, you've been talking without me. Now, whether or not it was true, right? So one of the things I really would think about, especially in a professional setting is the optics, right? Of whenever you're, inter, whenever you're working with other people, so for example, being very mindful of what appears behind you in a Zoom call, like it, especially if you know now IEP meetings are also uh, via Zoom, but that idea of being mindful of what's behind you or what's open on your tabs, keeping those that you don't want to send that message that something else is more important or something else has been happening without that person's input. So to me, that was one of the biggest takeaways that we suggested is, you know, you've got to it's got to look like it's a fresh, clean meeting every time. And it's got to be, you know, this welcoming environment. Um, I think we've all had that experience where you walk into a room where you come into a meeting and like, wait, has everybody been talking about me while I'm not here? And that's an off-putting feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling. So that's one of the things that we suggest in the book is that really being aware of the optics of the meeting space and making sure that it's as welcoming and as kind of non-judgmental as can be, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And as you said, that can be applied to a lot of areas uh, of, of life. And I, I think, I know for me, I can, um, you know, I, I can uh, attest to feeling like, you know, walking into a room, as you said, and seeing that things are already, you know, things are already on the table and people, like you said, coffee cups or snacks and things are already laid out. And I'm just like, oh, wait, uh, did I miss something? Did I get here a little late? Or like you said, was there a meeting before the meeting? Um, like what's going on here? So I think that's a, a very great suggestion for um, in the context of the IEP setting and also just in, in general for, for everybody, of course, um, you know, something that everybody can can uh, benefit from knowing that piece of information. As you mentioned, uh, you know, your son is uh, autistic. And as I mentioned, you uh, did teach a course uh, related to uh, disability topics. So my last question uh, for you is, what is one thing uh, that non-disabled people can do to better understand those who are disabled? 
I think this is such a great question. And this is of the questions that you sent, this is the one that I really spent the most time kind of thinking about and how I wanted to answer. And I think the truth is, is that, um, you know, like when I was working with the students in the class that you visited, they would say, you know, in the course of evaluations, they said, oh, the guest speakers were the best part of this class. So you and the other people who came to talk about their experiences, they really enjoyed that because they were able to ask questions in a way and in a space that they felt was not going to judge them, it was going to be a safe zone. But that doesn't necessarily work for adults. Um, you know, when you're trying to, you know, find out something, it doesn't necessarily work to go up to someone you don't know and start asking questions. Um, so I think for me, I think, um, and let me tell just a little bit of story here. So I live outside of Washington, DC uh, in Northern Virginia and Washington, DC is notoriously, has notoriously bad traffic. We are usually just behind Los Angeles. <laughs> and every time it snows or rains or something kind of precipitation or something, everyone starts complaining about, oh, it starts raining and no one knows how to drive anymore. And I'm sure that this is probably something that people say across the country. But indeed, <laughs> people will say, oh my gosh, it starts to snow and everyone suddenly has to drive five miles an hour or something. So people really kind of get upset when there's that kind of unexpected addition to their driving. I think that's kind of how sometimes people view um, someone who might be in a wheelchair, someone who doesn't talk. They suddenly forget that that's a person and they don't assume competence. So my point mm -hmm. would be assume competence. Assume that that person is, of course, just like you are and they understand everything that you're saying. I cannot count the number of times when my son is with me, yes, he is nonverbal, that people will start asking me questions about him. I'm like, he's standing right there and he's got a device. He can, you know, punch up his device. Right. Or we have um, people, students in, on campus who are in wheelchairs and people talk over that. I just, so to me, assuming competence, just assuming that the person that you perceive is different, whether or not they are, is actually competent and can understand you as actual human being is probably the biggest thing we can do. It's the simplest, but I'm always amazed at how people just kind of, oh my gosh, someone has crutches. That must mean that they can't understand anything I'm saying or, you know, so yes. assuming competence is huge. Just, just assume that from the beginning. Um, and along those lines, I, I'm not sure I can ever understand what your experience is like. I don't know if I could, I, I wish I could be inside my son's head for five minutes. I'm not sure I'll ever fully understand what his experience is like of moving through the world. But I do my best to, you know, be his ally in everything I can do, and I try to be an ally. Um, professionally speaking, I really push out things that, you know, trying to make everything that we do more accessible. Um, my family, um, I don't know if I should mention this, but I, you know, my family, I am. Nothing gets me more hot than um, driving into a parking lot, and let's say there's construction going on, and there are porta potties in the handicap spaces. Oh boy, does that get me upset. And so I try to be an ally and I will call the construction company and say, mm -mm, not okay. Or, you know, if someone sends me a PDF and it can't be read by a screen reader, I'll say, hmm, you might want to consider something else, right? So that assuming competence and trying to be an ally where I can be an ally are the two things that I think are the most important things that I can do. But I'm always looking where I, I would like to think I'm always looking for ways that I can be better, right? So that's another thing is being 
open to listening to, you know, what other things I can do, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And it's so true that, you know, and things are constantly changing as far as um, the accessibility uh, Mm -hmm. features of technology, as you mentioned, screen readers and uh, closed captioning and, and things like that. And I think where, as you said, we are, um, you know, I, I like to say we're like all a work in progress and it's like, we're all trying to <laughs> do the best that we can. And when we know better, we can do better. So, um, and, and talking to people, uh, I, I did an interview with uh, someone who was deaf mm-hmm. and I was able to ask her, you know, like, what is the best program to use for captioning. Like I'm trying to find it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what works for you and work, what works for people within the deaf community best, because I don't know, as you said, I don't know what that experience is like. My, my disability is mo- a mobility disability. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's just having the, uh, again, having the conversations and admitting that, that it's okay to admit what you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, and, and always wanting to improve and to, to do better uh, for uh, being inclusive and being uh, accessible for, for everybody. So uh, I, I really, I started laughing when you said something about the traffic in, in DC, because um, I was going, I remember a few years ago, I was going from New Jersey to North Carolina and I was in traffic in DC, not moving for almost three hours. And I really contemplated turning around and going back home. (laughs) Yes. So I was like, oh gosh, yes, it it was, it was terrible. I was like, I'll just go home and try it again tomorrow. Like it's not, it's not that big of a deal, but uh, (laughs) yeah. So um, it's really been, uh, it's really been great to uh, talk with you and to uh, catch up with you and and see all of the, great things that you're doing. Uh, we're friends on Facebook. So I, I did see that your son's birthday was uh, the other day and all of the great things that you all do and uh, congratulations with the book and, and all of that. And I am, uh, again, grateful for your time. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time to share uh, your experience with us and, and talk about your book. You're welcome. And I just want to say, if I may, in closing, um, you know, you were talking about the evolution of this podcast, you know, how it came to be. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, Arthur is such an impressive person because look at what he's done. You know, he's, he's brought this silver lining to the pandemic. And all I've learned is, you know, trying to identify the birds at my bird feeder. So (laughs) my hat is off to you. You are really, you know, kind of, um, I don't know. I, I guess to me, I think pivot is kind of this word that maybe is getting overused. I don't know, but you've really been able to kind of change directions and reimagine your mission and your vision. And I think that that's really, really cool. So I, I'm just so thrilled that you invited me. I'm so excited to be a part of it. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. And I, um, again, I'm still brand new at this just under a year. I started in June of last year. Um, I, I just released, I think my 35th episode, uh, this week, but, um, it's, it's been great because I've been able to make such great connections with new people who I, you know, possibly would have never met, um, and just being more active on social media and 
connecting with people in Canada and just throughout the country um, in the United States and um, actually worldwide. I'm, I've been connected with someone in Australia. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, so it's really just, um, it's it's really great. And I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, grateful for this time and uh, to really not know what I was doing at first. <laughs> <laughs> to being uh, a lot more comfortable with uh, doing, uh, having these conversations with people and just, um, again, figuring out ways that once uh, everything opens back up, how I can collaborate with them in person and, uh, you know, make things start, start making these changes. And again, it goes back to starting conversations and um, like my, my disability is a mobility disability. So I don't know what it's like to have uh, different learning disabilities or to be autistic or deaf mm -hmm. or uh, vision impaired or blind. It's just, um, you know, so to hear different stories and to see their, uh, see life through their eyes. Again, that's why I named it Our View because I want everybody to see the world from the view of someone who lives with a disability and it's different for all of us. So, um, you know, and, and then all of the other areas that are impacted by our disabilities, as, um, as I mentioned, having you on to talk about an educational piece, just, um, you know, I, I think that's, uh, these are things that the world at large need to hear and be aware of, because, um, you know, we're not really aware, and we're not really taught about these intricate pieces of, uh, of living with a disability. So, um, again, thank you for, for your time, I appreciate it. And um, just, uh, I look forward to uh, keeping in touch again and you know, working with you again in some kind of way in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Our View podcast. Leave us a review wherever you listen and let us know what you liked about this episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to follow us on all social media platforms for more disability related content at Our View for Life. That's O-U-R-V-I-E-W, the number four, L-I-F-E. If you listen to this episode on your phone, take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and be sure to tag us. We thank you for listening and take care.